Well, you thought dead skin discharges and dead bodies couldn't get worse, but it can. Turn with me in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 5 again. This time, we're going to skip down a few verses, and we are going to turn to perhaps one of the most bizarre ceremonies recorded anywhere in Scripture. It is the adultery test. Numbers chapter 5, verses 11 11 to 31. And if this passage of Scripture can speak to us three and a half thousand years later, any passage of Scripture can speak to us. Let's pray before we read it. Father, we're about to read a strange passage. It's a passage that many people in this room may well have never read before. And almost certainly it's a passage that if it has been read, people have scratched their heads and wondered what in the world is that about. But all scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man and woman of God might be equipped for every good work. We believe this, Lord. You tell us that in your word. The Apostle Paul told us that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we believe it. We find it out over and over and over again. We're studying genealogies, and we see the truth of Christ in the gospel. We're studying obscure laws, and we see the truth of Christ in the gospel. And we ask that you would do that again this morning, when our bodies are still tired and waking up, when we're anticipating fellowship with friends that we don't get to spend as much time as we'd like to spend we're going to get some of that time today when there are all sorts of things that could crowd out the thoughts of you in our hearts and minds. Just for a few moments, Lord, grant us by your spirit a special power of concentration on your word and open our eyes to behold wonderful things in it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is God's word. Hear it in Numbers 5, beginning in verse 11. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, and a man has intercourse with her, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she is undetected, although she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, and she has not been caught in the act. If a spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife when she has defiled herself or if a spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife when she has not defiled herself, the man shall then bring his wife to the priest and shall bring an offering for her one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal and he shall not pour oil on it, nor put frankincense in it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of memorial, a reminder of iniquity. Then the priest shall bring her near and have her stand before the Lord, and the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel, and he shall take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. 
The priest shall then have the woman stand before the Lord and let the hair of the woman's head go loose and place the grain offering of memorial in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy and in the hands of the priest is to be the water of bitterness that brings a curse. The priest shall have her take an oath and shall say to the woman, if no man has lain with you and if you have not gone astray into uncleanness, being under the authority of your husband, be immune to this water of bitterness that brings a curse. If you, however, have gone astray, being under the authority of your husband, and if you have defiled yourself and a man other than your husband has had intercourse with you, then the priest shall have the woman swear the oath of the curse, and the priest shall say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people by the Lord's making your thigh waste away and your abdomen swell, and this water that brings a curse shall go into your stomach and make your abdomen swell and your thigh waste away, and the woman shall say, Amen and Amen. Then the priest shall write these curses on a scroll and he shall wash them off into the water of bitterness and then he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings a curse so that the water which brings a curse will go into her and cause bitterness. The priest shall then take the grain offering of jealousy for the woman's hand, from the woman's hand, and he shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the grain offering as its memorial offering and offer it up in smoke on the altar. And afterwards, he shall make the woman drink the water. When he has made her drink the water, then it shall come about. If she has defiled herself and has been unfaithful to her husband, that the water which brings curse will go into her and cause bitterness and her abdomen will swell and her thigh will waste away and the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, she will then be free and conceive children. This is the law of jealousy. When a wife being under the authority of her husband goes astray and defiles herself or when a spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife, he shall then make the woman stand before the Lord and the priest shall apply all this law to her. Moreover, the man will be free from guilt, but that woman shall bear her guilt. Amen. Thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth upon all our hearts. It's one of the most bizarre rituals in all of the Bible. And perhaps you're reacting to it in a number of different ways. I can imagine that text being read in a women's studies course somewhere at a major university and say, you see, exhibit A, another example of ancient, patriarchal, chauvinistic religion, putting women in harm's way because of an over-suspicious husband. 
Is that what's going on here? Is this chauvinism at work? Is this the abuse of women at work? Well, I think if you'll dig into this passage with me for a few moments this morning, you're going to find out that not only is that not what is at work here, but something very, very big is at work here. I want you to see five things from this passage. Let me start with the big picture. Here's our first thing, the big picture. We, we first, we have to understand what is going on here. What you are reading is something that happened in the ancient world all the time. They are called trials by ordeal. Trials by ordeal. And popular literature and media in our own day and time even still makes fun of these things. Before you were born, before even your campus ministers were born, there was a character on Saturday Night Live called Theodoric of York, medieval judge. And he did this kind of stuff all the time. You know, trials by ordeal. Um, If you're innocent, submerge your hand in boiling water and it will come out unscathed. Yeah, that's a test that's likely to work. Or... Grasp this red-hot iron, and if when you unclasp it, your skin doesn't peel off and cleave to it, you're innocent of the particular crime of which you're charged. Or if you're a witch, we're going to tie you to a chair and throw you in the river, and if you float, you're innocent. If you sink... Well, we've already taken care of that. Trials by ordeal were common in the ancient world, where someone was accused of a particular crime which could not be proven through the normal processes, and they didn't have CSI and all the forensics abilities that we have today, and so crimes could easily be committed that were unprovable with regard to the perpetrator. And so they came up with trials by ordeal. But in most of these trials by ordeal, the accused is often guilty until miraculously proven innocent. In other words, if you you have to submerge your hand in boiling water or grasp a red-hot poker or be thrown into a water and float, even though you're weighted down, in order to be proven innocent, your possibility of being proven innocent is relatively small. It's going to take a miracle for you to be presumed innocent. But isn't it interesting in this passage, this test is completely physically safe and controlled and public. I mean, it might be unpleasant to drink a cup of water with some dust poured into it, but a cup of water with some dust poured into it, isn't going to do anything to you. It's not going to make your abdomen swell. It's not going to make you infertile and barren. It's not going to kill you. It's probably not even going to make you a little bit queasy. It's just going to be unpleasant. So what you're looking at here is a trial by ordeal. In the ancient Near Eastern world, You can find these all over the place, but normally they assume that the 
person charged is guilty until proven innocent. This trial requires a miracle in order to prove someone guilty. Because if a woman drinks a dusty cup of water, unless something miraculous happens, it's not going to result in her barrenness, her sickness, and her death. It's just going to be not very tasty. So you're looking at a trial by ordeal. Now, what, what's, what, okay, why? Why the trial by ordeal? We're still under point one, big picture. Because if you look back at verses 5 to 10 in Numbers chapter 5, what have they been dealing with? In Numbers chapter 5, verses 5 to 10, Moses has been dealing with moral offenses in the camp of Israel. And now in Numbers 11 to 31, he's addressing the issue of adultery. The point is, adultery, like these other moral offenses, and like the defilements that we studied last night, pollute the camp. Because in Israel, belief and behavior are supposed to go together. In Israel, what you believe is supposed to impact how you live. And if you say you believe the one God, and you say that you follow him, you're supposed to follow his commands, all of his commands, including his commands about sexual purity. And so this test is about pressing home the truth that adultery defiles and pollutes the camp and that belief and behavior are supposed to go together in Israel, but there's something else as well. Adultery will become a picture in the Old Testament of unfaithfulness to God. Adultery, in fact, will become a metaphor for idolatry. You know that if you've read much of the Old Testament, one of the great recurring themes is the children of Israel ceasing to worship the one true God and going after false gods. And the metaphor that is used for that over and over in the Bible is that Israel committed spiritual adultery. They abandoned their husband, the Lord, and they went after other gods. And so in this passage, that linkage between unfaithfulness to God and unfaithfulness to your spouse is made, not for the first time and not for the last time in the Bible. Over and over, that linkage will be made. In fact, we're going to see in a few moments in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul will pick up on that same image for you and me in our relationship to Christ. And he will say that the gospel itself is pictured in marriage. And so one of the things that's going on here is that God is wanting to tie the idea of unfaithfulness to a spouse to unfaithfulness to him so that we'll understand spiritual adultery. But then even more practically underneath that, what's going on here? 
What's going on here is a recognition that suspicion of infidelity can absolutely destroy a relationship. You know, I, over the course of 25 years, you would actually be surprised how often I have had a situation when a husband or a wife knows that their spouse has been unfaithful to them and the other partner will not admit it. I've had husbands come to me with text messages, email, and film. And their wife say, no, I, I, I didn't do that. I once had a man call me up and say, I think one of your congregation members is having an affair with my wife. And I think I think his wife knows and she's covering for him. Well, she was one of the godliest women I've ever known. I didn't buy that. But I could see that he had been doing these things and hiding it from her. And make a long story short, I eventually checked it out. He hadn't just had one affair, two affairs, or five affairs, or ten affairs, or fifteen affairs, or twenty affairs. He had been having affairs since before they were married when they were dating at Mississippi State. And we could prove it. And when we confronted him, no, I didn't do that. Buster, we've got you doing this for 15 years. No, I I didn't do it. That's exactly what's happening here. You have a person who's caught, but they won't admit it. And you've got a spouse with no way of confirming that one way or another. And the damage that that's going to do in a relationship is horrendous. And so you have this bizarre test, a trial by ordeal, common in the ancient world, but different in that the guilty is not assumed guilty until proven innocent. And the test itself, by contrast to some of these wild tests, walk over hot coals, grab a hot entrance instrument, submerge your hand into boiling water, be thrown into a river and float. That's not what's done. No, this test is physically safe and controlled And it's done under the oversight of the priest in public. No physical harm is going to befall anyone who undergoes this test. That's the first thing I want you to see is the big picture. Here's the second thing. In this passage, if you look at verse 15, the suspicious husband, the husband who fears that his wife has been unfaithful, is to take her to the priest. Notice, the husband doesn't get to handle this on his own. You know, there are some parts of our world culture today, today, not 50 years ago, not 100 years ago, not in the dark ages, but today, where if a husband is suspicious of his wife, she may well just disappear. And everybody will go, oh, I wonder where she went. And the village will go on 
as if she never existed. She'll just disappear. Why? The husband is taking care of things. Not in Israel. The husband's not allowed to take things into his own hand. He has to go to the priest. And he goes to the priest, and he takes this suspicion to the priest, and he says, you got to help me out. Now, what, what's going on there? Here's the second thing I want you to see. Why, why, why does this have to happen? Because sexual purity matters to the whole people of God. Sexual purity matters to the whole people of God. It's, it is a congregational matter when there is infidelity in marriage and when there is sexual impurity in a congregation. Here, here's, here's something to try out on you. I have never, ever known a divorce that brought about more peace and unity and blessing in a local congregation. I've never known a divorce that brought more peace more unity, and more blessing in a congregation. Divorce always wounds people. Even when it's biblical. Even when it's a biblical divorce. Even when he has grounds and she has grounds, it wounds people. And it wounds a congregation. And you can't help it. People take sides. And you know what? I've, I've never, ever had somebody show up in my office and sit down and say, my, my wife and I are getting a divorce and it's all my fault. <laughs> you know, it's, it's amazing. I've never had that happen. It's always, my wife and I are getting a divorce and it's all her fault. <laughs> and everybody out in the congregation gets that same message too from whoever they're talking to. And do you think that that brings about unity in the life of the congregation? No, it it, it tears people apart. Sexual purity, marital fidelity are matters that affect the whole people of God. And this passage is reminding us not only of that truth, that sexual morality is an issue, but get this. It's also telling us that unwarranted jealousy is a spiritual issue. You notice this case not only covers the instance in which a wife is guilty, it covers the instance in which the wife is innocent. Because it would be wrong for that man to burn in a spirit of jealousy against a woman who's innocent. It would be wrong. And this trial is designed to address that as well. One reason that your campus ministers talk to you about sexual purity now is because what you do now will, does have an impact on what you'll do in the context of marriage if God gives you that gift. And sexual purity matters to the whole people of God. I mean, that's one thing that this passage teaches. There's a third thing I want you to see. In this passage, what you are seeing is a pictured oath. It, it's, it's really striking, isn't it? Look at uh, verses 16 and following. Uh, let me just highlight four things. You'll see them in verses 17, 18, 19, and 28. But the, but the whole picture begins in verse 16. What is happening in this passage is an 
oath of curse is being dramatized. What we're seeing is a pictured oath here. An oath is not just being offered in words, it's being visualized. And I want you to look at four parts of it. In verse 17, notice that the woman is called upon to come before the priest and drink water that has dust poured in it from the tabernacle floor. Now, what's, the, what's going on with that? The tabernacle floor is holy. It's holy ground. It's where... It's the center of the public worship of the people of God. And so the point is, she has to take into her body things that are holy. Then look at verse 18. Then she has to hold an offering to the Lord in her hands. What's going on there? You remember what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 23 to 26? If you're on your way to worship God and you remember that someone has something against you, stop right there and go to your brother and first be reconciled and then go worship God. So that what? So that you are not a hypocrite. So that you're not pretending to worship God while you are a fact estranged from your brother. That's what's happening here. This, this woman is saying, okay, now we want you to worship God publicly. You really going to do that when you've been unfaithful to your husband? We want you to worship God publicly. So the offering's put into her hand. And she has to hold it before the Lord. It's designed to uncover hypocrisy and to move her to repent. The whole point of the exercise is if she's innocent, this is going to prove her innocence. But if she's guilty, it's designed to put enormous pressure on her so that she repents. Third, look at verse 19. She has to call down a curse on herself. She, she, Lord, if I'm innocent... Don't let these curses fall on me, but if I'm guilty, curse me, Lord. Make me barren, make me sick, even make me die. She calls down a, what's called a self-maledictory oath, a self-curse. And then in verse 28, we're told she faces the prospects of barrenness and public execration, exile, and even death. If she's guilty, everything here is designed either to absolutely exonerate this woman or to press her to repentance. Because when we are guilty of big sins that we are afraid are going to bring consequences upon us that we don't think we can handle our tendency is to deny them to the death and everything in this ceremony is designed to convince someone who is guilty it would be better for me to repent than to do what i'm about to do 
or to prove the absolute innocence of someone who has been falsely accused. The whole ceremony is designed to do that. Fourth, this passage also points to the sacredness of the marriage bond. These public measures highlight the sacredness of the marriage bond. Marital fidelity is a spiritual issue and it impacts the whole community. It impacts our relationship with God and unfaithfulness in marriage is incompatible with membership in the people of God. And this isn't just an Old Testament idea, it's a New Testament idea. You know, John in Revelation 28 21 8 we read it last night and again in revelation twenty two fifteen says that adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of god they will not be in the new heavens and the new earth and paul says that marriage is a picture of the gospel and so what is at stake is the picturing of the gospel in our marriages marital fidelity is absolutely essential to picturing the gospel because Jesus, the husband of the church, is never unfaithful to the church. And the bride of Christ is to be pure without spot or blemish. And so if the gospel is going to be pictured, marital fidelity amongst Christians is absolutely vital. And that's being reminded to us in this passage. But the big thing that I want you to see here, the huge thing that I want you to see here, is that this passage points to the atoning work of Christ. You won't get the pouring of dust from the tabernacle floor into a cup of water. And did you notice the writing of the curses on a scroll and then the dusting of that writing into the water and the woman drinking that cup, you won't get that if you don't remember the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. Do you remember in Genesis 3, 15 and 16, when God is cursing the serpent, the serpent who had tempted Adam and Eve to sin against God? Do you remember what God said to that serpent? Of the dust of the ground you will eat. It's a picture of curse. You're going to lick the dust. You're going to eat the dust. Picture of curse. Then you scroll forward to Exodus chapter 32. And if you've got your Bibles, turn to Exodus 32 verse 20. When the children of Israel made a golden calf and worshipped idolatrously, when they committed spiritual adultery and went after another God or worshipped the true God in the wrong way, whatever's happening there in Exodus 31, and when Moses comes down from that mountain and sees that golden calf, what does Moses do? Moses grounds that golden calf that they've been worshiping. He grounds that golden calf into powder. He grounds it into dust and he pours it in the water and he makes the children of Israel drink the water with the dust of the idol that they've been idolatrously worshiping. He makes them drink it. 
And when the woman comes in before the priest, he takes the dust from the tabernacle floor and he puts it in the water. And he takes the the letters of the curse that has been pronounced against her and pours it into the cup. And he says, drink this. It's the drinking of a curse. It's not just an Old Testament sign. In Luke 22, verse 42, in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, hours before he would die a gruesome death on the cross, he prays a prayer. Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. What's the cup? The cup is the cup of the wrath of God for sinners. And Christ knows what it means for him to stand in your place and have to drink the cup of the sins for which you are guilty. He's he's not going to drink a cup for an innocent woman. He's going to drink a cup to the dregs that contains the sins of guilty men and women. And it's going to mean for him public humiliation and execration and death, and worse. It's going to mean forsakenness by God. So in that garden that night, he prays, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Because he knows what's in that cup. That is a bitter cup of wrath in which you get what your sins deserve. And though he did not deserve the wrath contained in that cup, you did. And so he drank it for you. Now, there's one more thing I want you to see. I don't want you to miss this. Turn in your Bibles to John 8. Do you know that in John 8, we have a story of a woman caught in adultery and brought to the priests for condemnation. And Jesus shows up. And Jesus intercedes for that woman. And if you take a look especially at John 8, verses 6 and 8, When he is talking to that woman and to the gathered Pharisees and elders who are ready to condemn her, do you you notice what John tells us that Jesus started doing? He knelt down 
and he started writing in the dust. You ever wondered what that was about? Jesus, what's up with this? You, you're kneeling down, writing in the dust. There's a woman here who's in trouble. But don't, don't you think you need to kind of concentrate on her a little bit, Jesus, instead of writing in the dust? What's going on there? Friends, I've got to think that Jesus is thinking about Numbers 5, 11 to 31. And down there in the dust, and you understand, he is the tabernacle. He is the temple. The dust under his feet is the dust of the tabernacle. And he's writing in that dust. He's writing the curses that this woman deserves because she's guilty. But this woman isn't going to drink the cup. Jesus is going to drink the cup for her. And he says to her, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. Isn't that an interesting combination? I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. (laughs) He wouldn't have to say go and sin no more if she hadn't sinned and if she wasn't worthy of condemnation, but he doesn't condemn her. Because, you see, Jesus is going to drink her condemnation. She's going to go free. He's going to drink into his body her sin. You understand that's what your Savior does for you. You you trust in Jesus. You rest in him alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel. He's saying to you, my friend, my child, I'm going to drink your sin for you. Because if you drank to the dregs the condemnation that you deserved, you would be separated from God forever. You'd be alive and dead at the same time. You would be eternally condemned. but I'm going to drink that eternal condemnation for you so that you can go free. The priest in Numbers 5 could tell a husband whether his wife was guilty or not. But he couldn't make a guilty woman innocent. Jesus can. The way he does that is he drinks your cup of curse for you so that you don't have to. He's treated as guilty so that you can go free. That's what the adultery test is about. It's about another who drank our curses in his atoning work and so set us free. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, there is no part of the Word in which you do not testify to the gospel of your dear Son. And we pray that even when we come across these bizarre rituals in the Old Testament, that we would see Jesus who drank the cup for us so that we might go free. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.